Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, October 15th, 2021. Right now it is Thursday evening, and I'm recording this evening as Melissa and I will be on the road this weekend for a Florida League of the South meeting that we attend quarterly. This is a review of a pair of sermons by Bertrand Compare titled Globalism is Judaism. Of course, that's not the title of Compare's sermons. That's what I am titling this presentation. Actually, globalism, as it is practiced these last few decades, is Satanism. It is communism, and it is also Judaism. But in reality, those last three terms are merely synonyms. However, in these two sermons, which we are about to present and critique, Bertrand Compre himself does not use the terms globalism or Judaism. In fact, he only mentions Jews once in one of them, where he associated them with communism. Nevertheless, he certainly was describing and addressing all of these things. So here we are going to discuss two of Compare's sermons, both of them relatively short, which are titled, Like All the Nations and The Covenant with Death. When we are done, we hope to have elucidated the fact that international treaties with aliens and non-Christians certainly are a covenant with death, and from the observable state of world politics today, the assertion is proven beyond dispute. Because it has been so long since I read Gene Snyder's publication of Compre's Sermons, which is not necessarily complete, she didn't collect all of his sermons. There are a few that I know of that are not included for one reason or another. I don't know why. But in preparation for this program, I visited the Compare Project at Christagenia to search out what Bertrand Compare had said about Adolf Hitler. That is because of all the notable political figures of the 20th century, it was Adolf Hitler beyond any other who had stood against globalism. He saw globalism as a vehicle of both Jewish capitalism and Jewish Marxism, and correctly understood that all of these are just different arms of the same beast. Hitler had understood that the Jew, an international creature, has forever sought to subvert every nation and was effective at that subversion through the command which he had of international finance, or I should say, which he has of international finance. For that same reason, he also understood that the Jew is the destroyer of the integrity of all of creation, and especially of our white Christian race. While Compare was certainly no national socialist, at least in the mainstream sense that the enemies of God like to label as Nazi, surprisingly he did not express antipathy for Hitler. I say that because 
Compare was a product of his time, just like all of us are. But rather, Compare seemed neutral and objective, and neither did he accept the charges of genocide known by the Jewish trademark Holocaust. In fact, speaking of the Second World War in his sermon, Babylon's Money, Compare said the worst things that Hitler was ever accused of doing, and they were lies, weren't half as bad as what we did, meaning the United States, as a matter of government policy. And then, even better, Compare went on to explain that you know what the Jews want to do to Christian civilization. I don't have to give an hour's sermon on that subject, and you should know these facts by now. We wish he had given an hour's sermon on the subject, as I am certain Compare was before his time on that issue as well. There are glimpses in some of his other sermons. Then he continued, and he said, We have allowed these Jews to get this power over us. Yahweh warned us never to let a Jew live in our land. I will say this for Hitler. If he did what he is accused of doing, he wasn't doing anything wrong at all. He was obeying the laws of Yahweh when he started cleaning out these blood-sucking parasites out of Germany. The end of my Compare quote. But Hitler also had his faults. And like every other Western politician, he too made associations and alliances with aliens and non-Christians. Hitler saw that Christianity was crucial to the survival of his people as a moral foundation, and National Socialism was built upon that foundation, but not in its diplomatic policy. The missing element is possessed only by identity Christians, of which Hitler was not. Like most other Europeans these past 1600 years, he too was fooled into believing that the Bible, that the Old Testament was a Jewish book rather than a Christian book, something which is refuted even by the apostles of Christ. Hitler understood that Christ is an Aryan, the term which he used to describe whites, from the character which he had exhibited. But he did not understand that the entire Bible, except for one particularly spurious book, and I refer to the book of Esther, was written for, by, and about Aryans and their God. That is our biggest challenge. When I say our, I mean identity Christians collectively today. Each time I prepare a presentation on any Bible subject, I am compelled to consider how much I should explain in order for at least some listeners who are not so familiar with our profession to understand what it is that I am presenting. How would I explain to someone such as Hitler just how it is that the Bible was or is an Aryan book and a Christian book? Such a man would have little patience for foolishness, yet he would probably be humble enough to listen, so long as he did not hear any foolishness. 
But what we profess here takes many hours to adequately explain. So what if I only had five minutes? The Israelites were farmers and husbandmen. They founded an agrarian society. When were Jews ever farmers or husbandmen? The Israelites barred usury and saw it as a disgrace. When did Jews ever have that attitude? The Israelites punished fornication, adultery, and sodomy with death, while the Jews have always been the purveyors of those same things, relishing in them. Tel Aviv today is the gayest city on earth. The Israelites coveted milk and honey, but the Jews as a people are almost completely lactose intolerant. The Israelites were tempted by Canaanites into sexual immorality. Germany suffered that same pattern during the Weimar era at the hands of the Jews. If Hitler could estimate their identity by their character, as he did that of Christ, then he would have to stop and consider these things more deeply. The Israelites were forbidden from globalism, and the Jews have always been the driving force behind globalism. Ancient Judea was infiltrated and corrupted by Canaanites, who had mingled themselves with the, who had, I should say, already mingled themselves with the descendants of the Nephilim, and who were the purveyors of globalism from prehistoric times. Compre was right where, speaking of Hitler, he had said that Yahweh warned us never to let a Jew live in our land. But when Yahweh, issued, when Yahweh had issued that warning, Jews were called Canaanites or Edomites, and many of them at divers earlier times were even Kenites, Rephaim or Nephilim. I think Hitler would have realized that natural genetic character may sometimes be corrupted with vice, as he himself had witnessed and attested during the Weimar period. But essentially, it does not change. However, most of today's denominational white Christians would have to be completely re-educated to make that same realization, as they have all been thoroughly brainwashed by the Jew. If Christians would only believe the apostles of Christ and the words which are clearly written in their own copies of the New Testament, they too may be compelled to listen. Paul of Tarsus explained that those who both killed the Lord Jesus and pleased not God were also contrary to all men. He wasn't speaking of Romans in chapter 2 of his first epistle to the Thessalonians. The Apostle John warned his readers in his second epistle that if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, meaning the doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that 
biddeth him Godspeed, is a partaker of his evil deeds. Bidding one Godspeed is the archaic English way of greeting someone. The Greek verb, kahiro, is literally to be glad, to rejoice, or to be delighted. But it was also used to describe the act of greeting a person, evidently because you are happy to see that person. So if one even greets a Jew who denies both the Father and the Son by refusing to acknowledge that Yahshua is the Christ, then one is a partaker with that Jew in all of his wicked deeds, and that goes for all of the other races and religions as well. Paul spoke of them in Ephesians chapter 5, warning that it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So here, because we are going to present Compare's sermon on the covenant with death, we will begin by discussing that particular passage in Isaiah, but save the sermon itself for the second place this evening. It is probably fitting to present, like all the nations, first. Even before we are finished, the reasons why these two subjects are intricately connected should be obvious if it cannot be told from the titles themselves. Ancient Jerusalem had indeed been infiltrated by the enemies of Yahweh. And the passage concerning the covenant with death found in Isaiah chapter 28 is enveloped in prophecies foreboding the destruction of Jerusalem on account of that. In Isaiah chapter 22, Yahweh warned Judah and Jerusalem that they would ultimately be carried into captivity and the city destroyed. But a prophecy concerning the destruction of ancient Tyre, the great seaport of ancient Israel, is presented first in Isaiah chapters 23 and 24, where we read the burden of Tyre. In the closing verses of the chapter, it says, How, ye ships of Tarshish, for in the closing verses of chapter 23, I am sorry. It says, How, ye ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste, and it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten seventy years, according to the days of one king. After the end of 70 years shall Tyre sing as a harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, thou harlot, that has been forgotten. So we see right there that just as Yahweh announced of Israel in Hosea, that Tyre was a harlot. To be a harlot, in the eyes of God, Tyre must have been an Israelite city. Make sweet melody, sing many songs, that thou mayest be remembered. And it shall come to pass, after the end of seventy years, that Yahweh will visit Tyre, and she shall turn to her hire, 
and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. And her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to Yahweh. It shall not be treasured nor laid up, for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before Yahweh to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. I don't want to make a commentary on that passage alone. Perhaps someday I will have that opportunity. But reading this, we cannot help but notice the similarity of the conditions of ancient Tyre with that of the woman who represents the children of Israel in Revelation chapter 17, who joins herself to the beast and becomes a harlot. And her inevitable shame in the fall of Mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 where once again her sin is associated with the international merchants. Then in Isaiah chapter 24, the focus changes to the land of Israel itself, which was in the midst of suffering the Assyrian invasions and deportations of Israel. And we read in part, Behold, Yahweh makes the earth empty, meaning the land, that word earth, aretz, over a thousand times was translated as land, and it certainly should have been translated as land in this chapter, within this context, because it's clearly speaking of the land of Israel, Israel and Judah. Behold, Yahweh makes the land empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be, and that turns it upside down. That shouldn't be taken literally either. It's speaking allegorically. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. In other words, all are going to suffer on account of these sins. It is certain that this is speaking of Israel as well as Judah, where we read a little further on in the chapter that they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of Yahweh. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore, glorify ye Yahweh in the fires, even the name of Yahweh, God of Israel, in the isles of the sea. Then, at the end of Isaiah chapter 24, there is a prophecy which is apparently alluding to those who had infiltrated and subverted ancient Jerusalem. And we read, And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall punish the hosts of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when Yahweh of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. The term his ancients would be a reference to Israel and Judah as opposed to the host of the high ones. There is a similar description and an oracle against Esau in Jeremiah chapter 49, which says in part that thy terribleness has deceived thee. 
and the pride of thine heart, O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, though thou should makest thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith Yahweh. This is explicitly a prophecy against Esau in the days of Jeremiah. So we see who the hosts of the high ones are, who are not Israelites in this prophecy here in Isaiah. Also, Edom shall be a desolation. Everyone that goes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss at all the plagues thereof. So in response to these prophecies in the previous chapters of Isaiah, in chapters 23 and 24, in chapter 25 we read a prayer addressing Yahweh, which says, O Lord, or O Yahweh, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city a heap, of a defense ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nation shall fear thee. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress. The host of the high ones was oppressing people in those days also. A refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers, as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. Bertrand Compare, interpreting that in other sermons had actually thought that it described a nuclear explosion. I wouldn't go that far. After that, the prayer has a message of hope for the children of Israel. And it says, And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory and Yahweh God shall wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for Yahweh has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So all people must mean all of the Israelite people. Then after a promise of salvation for Judah, in the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 26, we read where it speaks of Yahweh, for he brings down them that dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He layeth it low even to the ground. He brings it even to the dust. Amid expressions of repentance, salvation, and the deliverance of Israel, we read in the later verses of the same chapter, 
that thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. That is a reference to the increase and spread of the children of Israel and Judah in the Assyrian captivities, that it would be increased and not diminished in their migrations. Then, where the chapter break is unfortunate, in the closing verses of Isaiah chapter 26 and the beginning of chapter 27, because some people think that a new subject begins when a new chapter begins, that's not true. We always have to go back from the beginning of a chapter to see the context, and this is the same context. So we read from verse 20 of chapter 26. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For lo, behold, Yahweh comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So, inhabitants of the earth do not include his people, that he's putting them into secrecy, into hiding. For behold, Yahweh comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall also disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. In that day, and right here we see who is responsible for that blood and for those slain. In that day, Yahweh with his sword and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. The reference to Leviathan is not meant to describe some literal serpent or sea creature. Rather, the sea is the mass of the world's peoples, and Leviathan is the collective serpent among them, those whom John the Baptist, Yahshua Christ, and his disciples had identified as serpents and vipers, represented in the world today by their descendants, the Edomite Jews and all of the related Canaanite Arab races. With that, there is another promise of salvation for Israel, and we read a little further on in verse 6. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. This happened after the Assyrian captivity, where the children of Israel had grown into the Germanic tribes, which later migrated into Europe. But at the end of that chapter, we see a greater promise where we read, And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship Yahweh in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Those who were ready to perish in Assyria are the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. But those who were outcasts in the land of Egypt 
includes the Israelites who did not follow Moses, but who departed Egypt by sea, eventually becoming Danning Greeks, Trojans, and Romans, as well as groups of Israelites, such as the Phoenician Dor- Phoenicians and the Dorians, who migrated later on. From there, at the beginning, they were all, all Israelites were outcasts in the land of Egypt, but not all Israelites were ready to perish in Assyria, because many had left Israel before time. They founded Carthage. They went to Greece. They went to Sicily. They went to Iberia. They went to Britain. From there, at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 28, The focus has changed to the drunkards of Ephraim, who erred through wine, through strong drink, are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. So the drunkards of Ephraim, they were called the drunkards of Ephraim because of their departure from their God, but quite often they were evidently literal drunkards, especially their priests and their leaders, and even their prophets, at least a good portion of them. These were also accused in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah of purposely leading the people astray. So here we see it in Isaiah as well to purposely lead the people astray, one must be a drunkard. So then, after lamenting their lack of knowledge and their need to learn doctrine, in that context, we read of the covenant with death. So later in the chapter, it says, Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement, When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. And of course, this is also a messianic prophecy referring to Christ, which is noted by Peter in chapter 2 of his first epistle. Then, after further prophecies of the destruction of his enemies, in the opening verses of chapter 29, we read an oracle lamenting Ariel, another name for the city of David in Jerusalem. And it is prophesied to be destroyed where Yahweh warns, And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount. I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and speak shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as of one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. 
Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. It shall be at an instant, suddenly. So once again, we see a reference to the terrible ones who are strangers and not of Israel. The same as the multitude of thy strangers and also the host of the high ones mentioned earlier in these chapters of Isaiah. Also the same as the Leviathan, which is in the sea, the international merchants who are of the seed of the serpent. These had turned the ancient children of Israel and Judah to globalism 3,000 years ago. And it is they who have done that same thing once again today, which is why Mystery Babylon is associated with the merchants of the earth in Revelation chapter 18. In Hosea chapter 2, we also see that the sin of Israel is associated with international trade. We're speaking of Israel collectively as a woman, and we read, For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, speaking of the nation. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. The children of Israel certainly did return to their first husband in the person of Yahshua Christ. But now they have once again played the harlot and joined themselves to the beast as it is described in Revelation chapter 17. So just as ancient Israel was depicted as a woman playing the harlot in Hosea, having joined herself to alliances with other nations, with trade agreements, modern Israel is now a harlot joined to a beast which is represented by the international merchants, just as it is described in the Revelation. There's nothing new under the sun. Hopefully now the challenge which we face is apparent, that in order to truly understand this, there is very much prerequisite information which must first be understood. We, meaning white Europeans, are the true descendants, the true genetic descendants of the ancient children of Israel. Wherever we live, we have been followed by the Jew, infiltrated and corrupted until we are controlled. And then we are punished as our God sees fit for joining ourselves to his enemies, to those who hate his Christ. The pattern is clear. Yet we must continue to seek better ways to sufficiently explain this to our still-sleeping brethren, 
who are blinded with the propaganda of the Jew. So in this, we will present Bertrand Cabre's sermon, like all the nations, which was taken from Gene Snyder's compilation of Compre sermons published by primarily by Kingdom Identity Ministries under the title Your Heritage and prepared for internet publication by Clifton A. Emmeheiser, who had added some critical notes. I will move Clifton's notes to appropriate points in this presentation. So this is Like All the Nations by Bertrand Compre, and I probably have more notes than Compre has sermon, but that's okay. The Old and the New Testaments tell exactly the same story. There is as much Christianity in the Old Testament as in the New. People whose religion is too shallow to make any study of it have always overlooked this fact. Both 2,000 years ago and again today. There is still the same firm insistence upon the national message in the New Testament as the old. However, shallow religion fails to see it. Where Compare refers to shallow religion, he means to describe all of the Christian denominations as they are all shallow. The Old Testament is a Christian book, and it can only be understood by Christians as Paul of Tarsus himself had explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that you don't understand Moses until the veil is lifted in Christ. Once that veil is lifted, then you could understand Moses. Therefore, according to Paul of Tarsus, no Jew could understand Moses, and I would have to agree. The New Testament is, of course, a Christian book. But it is also an Israelite book, as the words of Christ himself in both the Gospel and the Revelation inform us on many occasions. The purveyors of shallow religion have never been able to properly explain one in relation to the other. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh God promised to save Israel from their enemies in spite of their sins, even though they had made a covenant with death. Then, throughout the New Testament, it is announced that Israel has been saved from their enemies and that Christ has forgiven their sins, having come for them alone. In spite of his plain words, the churches continue to deny him by corrupting his meaning and intentions. But in the end, they shall find that he has not changed. Continuing with Compare for a little bit, when Yahshua first came, Israel was not willing to receive him as Savior and Redeemer because they would not accept the whole message, only the national half of it. The Pharisees of today's churches are just as wrong. They reject just as contemptuously the national message, and this error will be just as disastrous as the other. And this is true to a degree where many of the Judeans of the first century had expected a Messiah to throw off the yoke of Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. Even the apostles had inquired about that, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1. However, Christ came instead to address their sins, 
whether national or personal, and commanded they repent so that he could ultimately be reconciled to all of Israel as he had promised in the prophets of the Old Testament. Throughout the New Testament scriptures, there is no offer or possibility of a return to the kingdom of God without repentance. Now Compre further discusses these aspects of the relationship. When Yahshua returns, he will not be coming as the savior of the individual. For that work, he is already completed. As he said upon the cross, it is finished. He is coming as a king of a very real kingdom upon this earth. It will not do to reject him and his crown and only meet him with the cross. That's why Christ is proclaimed Lord of Lords, King of Kings in the book of Revelation. As Paul had attested in Romans chapter 11, following the word of God in Isaiah chapter 45, all Israel shall be saved. All of the sins of Israel having been forgiven. The Apostle John would agree wholeheartedly. He does in chapter 3 of his first epistle. But Paul rather consistently taught that we are to cease from sin, and so did John in different ways, if we are to enter the kingdom of God. To enter that kingdom, we must also accept his being king, that there should be no other king. Now Compre continues to speak of the national aspect, which should be the greater concern, love for one's brother, recognizing who one's brother is. In the past, Israel had rejected Yahweh as their king. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12 starts the story. No, it really doesn't start the story, but it does explain it. Yahweh your God was your king. Compare quoting six words from that verse. A more complete portion of 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, may have been cited, where Samuel was recalling the events of 1 Samuel chapter 8 and tells the children of Israel, And Yahweh sent Jerubal and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelled safe. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, Nay! But a king shall reign over us, when Yahweh your God was your king. Now therefore, behold the king whom you have chosen, and whom you have desired. And behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. A reference to Saul. Compre will mention the earlier account shortly. But first, because Yahweh was king of Israel, Compre explains that they were not like the other nations as they mostly remembered the word of Yahweh. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, Yahweh tells Israel, Thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations upon the earth. While Israel remembered to keep themselves separate from and different from all the other races and nations, they had peace and prosperity. They were, as Yahweh said in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, and Psalm 135, verse 4, 
a peculiar treasure unto him above all other people. Of course, Peter also says that in 1 Peter chapter 2. When Samuel grew old and could no longer vigorously enforce Yahweh's laws, instead of the people turning to Yahweh for the full restoration of the laws of his kingdom, they said to Samuel, which is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Make us a king that we may be like all the nations. As Yahweh said in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 7, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. This was the beginning of disaster. Yahweh warned the people of the evil ways of a human king, who would indeed rule them like all the nations. They would not heed this warning. As Yahweh warned them, high taxes, bureaucracy, and unreasonable tyranny were their fate like all the nations. The implications of Yahweh being the king of Israel go even deeper than Compare had expressed here. Yahweh choosing to be their king, and their king exclusively, the God of creation was setting aside the interests of all other nations for their benefit. The land of Canaan was only a type for Israel's ultimate destination. In Isaiah chapter 27, even as Israel was going off into captivity, we read a promise that he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Later, an analogy in Isaiah chapter 60 promises Israel that thou shalt also suck the milk of the nations and shalt suck the breast of kings and thou shalt know that I Yahweh and thy Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The milk and the breasts of the nations is symbolic for the wealth which they possess. Yet in the meantime, the children of Israel were warned not to make agreements or alliances with other tribes or their gods. So we read in Exodus chapter 23, and I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river, meaning the desert of the south, all the way to the river Euphrates, as it was promised to Abraham. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Making alliances with other peoples, one must also recognize their gods. That act makes one an idolater. Since Yahweh God is the God of Israel alone, and as he said, all other gods are idols. There is only one God, and he is only the God of Israel. If you recognize any other people, you are, in that act of recognition, you are committing idolatry 
to this very day. It hasn't changed. A people are inseparable from their gods. As Paul had explained of Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he said, according to the King James Version, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of the harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? So you make an agreement with people of other races and nations. You become one body with those other races and nations. For two, saith he, shall be for one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Christ having come only for the children of Israel, only they can be properly joined to him as it is he that has made the election and the calling and not the desires of men. But now Comparé turns his attention to the folly of the churches. Today, most of the churches are the loudest in shouting the satanic and communist doctrine that we also should be like all the nations. Open idolatry would not be a more direct repudiation of Yahweh. So Compre understood what I had just explained. He just didn't go so far in explaining it. Yahweh's commandments are the same in the New Testament as in the Old. In Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 24 and 26, it is recorded, I am Yahweh your God, which has separated you from other people. And you shall be holy unto me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have severed you from other people that you should be mine. By this act alone, Yahweh repudiated all other nations and races, all other people. And this is part of the law which Christ had come to fulfill. Not one jot or tittle will fail. So in Matthew chapter 15, he is recorded as having said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep, those that were already lost, of the house of Israel. Paul of Tarsus taught this same separation. So now, so now Compare cites another of Paul's epistles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, the command is still the same. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? The other nations were never given a law. And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As Yahweh has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Speaking exclusively to Israel, to the ancient children of Israel, in a prophecy of Christ. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith Yahweh, and touch not the unclean, and we see the word thing in the text in italics. 
and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith Yahweh the Almighty. The King James translation of this passage, as Compre just read it, makes Paul into a liar. If we compare it with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, where Paul had encouraged Christian men and women to remain with unbelieving spouses so long as they would have them. But Paul was not a liar, and he is not contradicting himself here. Holding the false Roman Catholic belief that Israel is now a spiritual body of mere believers, which is contrary to the words of Christ and his apostles, the King James and other translators read an adjective as a noun and omit a portion of the meaning of the participle verb. We would read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 to read, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? The faithful being those who have the faith. The faith as Paul defined it in Romans chapter 4, being what Abraham believed, that's the faith of Abraham, being what ancient Israel believed, that's a promise of salvation in the Messiah, where the faithless are those who are outside the faith, who simply don't have it because they are not included in those explicit, exclusive promises. They are the faithless. They can't believe because they are not his sheep, as Christ had told his adversaries, the Edomites in Judea, you believe me not because you are not my sheep. That's why they're faithless. Furthermore, where it says unclean thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, the word thing, being in italics, was added to the text, and it is not found in the original Greek. The translators assumed Paul was speaking of things, where he was actually speaking of people, by saying, touch not the unclean, citing Isaiah. He was referring to the them in the previous sentence where it says, come out from among them and be ye separate. It's very plain. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Touch not the unclean, which is the them that you're being commanded to come out from among. Compre did not explain this, but perhaps thought his listeners would already have known and understood. That is another example of our challenge. Not knowing when we make such references whether our listeners would hear and understand, or read and understand. Based on these scriptures, Compre now makes a proper conclusion. When we make ourselves like all the nations... We are both rejecting and defying Yahweh. The forms of this is to put ourselves under the rule of these pagan nations through the United Nations. To work with them at all, except on our terms, is bad. To work under them, 
for purposes determined by their majority vote, is always evil. It is despising and rejecting the very purpose for which Yahweh sent us down here. And of course, this is true as long as our terms are only to push the other nations and races out of our way. That was the purpose of many early colonists, and it was lost to the interests of the international merchants. The churches themselves, however, had never had the correct policies, because 1,600 years ago, they opted to learn about Christianity from Jews and from pagan philosophers, rather than from Christ and his apostles. Compare now speaks of them. The churches should be the first to warn us against this. They should teach the gospel of our national law, our national organization into Yahweh's kingdom, and our national destiny. Failure to do this will not be pardoned. The warning is plain and always the same. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, Yahweh complains about the actions of Israel. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. It says very much the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 34. As a digression, Adolf Hitler, the last ruler of a Christian nation to resist, to openly resist Jewish globalism, had accepted and promoted Christianity as being necessary for the moral health and well-being of the nation. But he openly despised and criticized the churches for conducting their missions to Africa as they neglected their own fellow Germans. Returning to Compare and Jeremiah, Yahweh continues in Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. Behold, the word of Yahweh is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. From the prophet even unto the priest, every one deals falsely. They have healed also the hurt of my people, but slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith Yahweh. Old Testament, yes. But now read Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Master, Master, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Our racial and national heritage is both a birthright and a duty. It is our duty to be strong and resolute. For Yahweh has told us, Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Had we been true to Yahweh's commandments, and now Compre is breaking the world up along Cold War lines rather than along racial lines, had we been true to Yahweh's commandments, 
We would have broken the power of Red Russia while she was weak. We would not have caused China to go communist. The whole world would now be living in peace and freedom. Actually, if we'd have been true to Yahweh's commandments, we'd have taken the side of Germany in the First World War, and there wouldn't have been a second. And the whole world would live in peace and freedom. While we have some objections to some of this, which I will leave until we present Clifton's remarks on this section of the sermon, it is true that the American government caused China to become communist. So Compre was correct to make that assertion. It was done under a cloak of deceit, but it was nevertheless done. So while that is another story, it, is certainly, it certainly reveals the true extent of international Jewish control of both America and China, which, just like the former Soviet Union, serves as a puppet state for the Rothschilds and their Jewish gang of international bankers. Now returning to Compare, before we present Clifton's criticism. However, we allow treacherous politicians and clergymen to talk liberalism and pacifism to us, when our duty could have then been performed easily and safely. Today we still face the same duty, but now what is the cost? Has the clergy's preaching been good? By their fruits ye shall know them. It is our duty to possess and govern the heathen. Now, this is where Compare really goes astray, but he did allude to this discreetly a few paragraphs earlier, and I let it go then, knowing that this was coming. It is our duty to our duty, I'm sorry, to possess and govern the heathen, teaching them Yahweh's laws. And that's not true at all. In Psalm 105, 43 and 44, we read, And he brought forth his people with joy. He had his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen. In Psalm 18, 43, we read, Thou hast made me the head of the heathen. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. Our clergymen have denounced this as colonialism. They also say that we must lower ourselves to equality with the cannibals, since we can't raise them to our level. As a result, what has happened in Cuba, China, and the Congo? Is this to the glory of Yahweh? Where is the influence of the missionaries, now that the witch doctors reign supreme? Isn't it time that we send missionaries to the churches to bring them back to the word of Yahweh? And why the hell would we want to bring back these churches to the word of Yahweh if it means bringing the word of Yahweh to these savages in these shithole countries, as Donald Trump called them? While Compre is certainly correct about the attitude of the churches, as they are only preaching Talmudic Judaism for Goyim, he is wrong about the mission of Israel in relation to the non-white races, or heathen, as he calls them. So in reference to these statements, Clifton Emmerheiser made his only critical note for this sermon, and said, Again, a good job by Compare, and although he did well, I can't give him a perfect score. His main comments, with which I disagree, 
are where he remarked, and here Clifton is repeating portions of Compare's last few paragraphs, we would not have caused China to go communist. The whole world would now be living in peace and freedom. It is our duty to possess and govern the heathen, teaching them Yahweh's laws. So Clifton disagrees with all of that. In Psalm 105, chapter, I'm sorry, verses 43 to 44, we read, And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness and gave them the lands of the heathen. And Clifton is disagreeing with Compare citing that in this context. In Psalm 1843, we read, Thou hast made me the head of the heathen, a people whom I have not known shall serve me. Isn't it time that we send missionaries to the churches to bring them back to the word of Yahweh? So Clifton is disagreeing with Compre's use of Psalm 1843 in this context, and also with that final statement, with which I would also disagree, that we don't send missionaries to the churches for that purpose. So now Clifton responds to those remarks. He says, Psalms 105, 43, and 44, and 1843 are not in the context which Compare assumes. Psalm 105, 43, and 44 is rather speaking of the Israelites acquiring the land of Canaan along with its buildings. And he, and Clifton's quoting, and he's going to make a few clarifications in parentheses. And he, Yahweh, brought forth his people with joy out of Egypt, and his chosen, the Israelites, with gladness. And he gave them the lands of the heathen, the Canaanites, and they inherited the labor in the structures built of the people, the Canaanite people. Clifton says not only were the Israelites to dispossess the Canaanites of land and property, but the Almighty commanded Israel to slay every Canaanite man, woman, and infant that breathed of whom today's bad fig Jews are akin. And yes, in part they are. And in part they are Edomites. Psalm 1843, Clifton says, is an entirely different subject. And Compre should never have quoted it with Psalm 105, 43, and 44 in the same paragraph as he did. Doing so, he only left an incorrect impression. Psalm 1843 addresses David's future kingship over the Israel tribes, while Psalm 105, 43, and 44 addresses Israel's exodus from Egypt. I will now amplify Psalm 1843 for a better understanding. Thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people, and Clifton has in parentheses Israel, and that is true. His fighting with Saul and his flight from Saul and the people always striving over who would be king between David and Saul. And thou hast made me the head of the heathen. And Clifton strikes that and writes that Goy equals Israel nations. And that is also true. The tribes of Israel were referred to as nations in the Song of Moses, as early as the Song of Moses. A people whom I have not known, and Clifton writes, in the future, shall serve my house of David descendants. Clarifying that 
where it says that they shall serve him. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. And it is completely irrelevant whether China is a friend or not. For Israel was instructed by Yahweh to have zero dealings with alien Enosh. And of course, Enosh is just a general term for man, but often it is set in contradistinction to the term Adam, which is a specific term for a particular race of man. This is true. While David did conquer and subdue the surrounding nations, that was only necessary as he had to subdue and control them on behalf of the interests of Israel, and the children of Israel who preceded him did not eliminate them all as they were originally commanded to do. But David was not appointed to be their king or rightful ruler. Rather, David was appointed to be the king of Israel alone, as Yahweh had been king of Israel alone. So we read in Isaiah chapter 63, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledges us not. Thou, O Yahweh, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways? So these people were certainly Israelites, of course. And hardened our heart from thy fear. Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance, the twelve tribes of Israel. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them, meaning the other nations. They were not called by thy name. So Yahweh never bared rule over the other nations races, and nations up to the time of the prophet Isaiah. Neither was Israel to ever teach the heathen the law. And it is evident that David never attempted to teach the law to the aliens whom he had subdued. This is apparent where we read in the 147th Psalm that he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. Dominion theology is a lie. Yahweh has dominion over the children of Israel exclusively according to his word. Dominion theology is a lie that was created in British Israel so that they could justify the British Empire, and its ruling over so many heathen nations. And they, made a, they tried to make a good thing out of that, a positive thing out of that. Look at Britain today. Look at the result of that. Now the heathens are in Britain ruling over the British. That's the result of the British Empire. There you have it. Now returning to Compare, because white colonists brought civilization to non-white races for the first time, that doesn't make it right where he continues and says, The white man gave Africa the only civilization it ever knew. 
And of course, Africans can't possibly be civilized. If we don't understand that, after 500 years of missionaries, after 200 years of American cities loaded up with niggers that are all now destroyed, how are we going to get it? They can't be civilized, ever. Compare continues. When white people's intervention kept the warlords from gaining power, China had peace. Of course, they had peace under the threat of British guns. We brought Cuba, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Panama, the only sanitation, hospitals, and the only education they ever had. We are now being told this was evil colonialism, and we must now submit to being ruled by them. The liberals want us to be governed by the standards of Cuba and the Congo, because we should be like all the other nations, and they have the majority votes. Perhaps Compare should have identified the liberals correctly as Jews, but his own listeners probably already knew that. While not all liberals are Jews, the Jews and the Freemasonic lodges which they have always commanded have been the proponents of liberalism from its beginnings, just as they were the proponents of liberalism in the land of Canaan. So where Israel failed to drive out the Canaanites, we read in Judges chapter 3 that Yahweh would leave them, and they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken under the commandments of Yahweh, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites and Amorites, and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Now, today, rather than keep the commandments of Yahweh, the descendants of those same Canaanites have once again enticed the children of Israel to commit those same sins. So Compare addresses that same phenomenon where he says, for the last 3,300 years, every time we have tried to become like the other nations, it has reduced us to their level. This includes all the evils, poverty, misrule, and corruption that has plagued them. There is no peace, saith Yahweh, unto the wicked. We shall have no peace until we obey Yahweh's command. Come out from among them and be ye separate. And touch not the unclean, and compare added that word thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith Yahweh the Almighty. I should say compare followed the addition of that word thing. Here, the word thing has been struck through in Clifton's text, but compare had repeated it when he cited the verse at the end of his sermon. And Jean Snyder included it in her own publication of the text, repeating rather than challenging the poor choices of the King James translators, makes our cause all the more difficult. But Compre's premise is certainly correct. The children of Israel shall have no peace so long as they are joined to the wicked, 
and they shall never be able to assume their rightful position as the sons and daughters of Yahweh their God unless they come out from among them and be separate. So for that reason, every covenant, every agreement with non-whites and non-Christians and especially with the Jews and those who openly deny Christ, is indeed a covenant with death. So now we shall present and discuss the covenant with death, another sermon by Bertrand Compare. Once again, this is taken from Gene Snyder's compilation of Compare sermons, published under the title Your Heritage and prepared for internet publication by Clifton Emmerheiser, who added some critical notes. I keep repeating that before every Compare sermon, but I feel that I'm obligated to repeat it. The Covenant with Death Despite the Bible's constantly repeated warnings against making agreements with the wicked, our so-called statesmen seem to have no other occupation. They are so blind to all moral principle, they have no other plan or idea for governing the world than by agreements which are acceptable to the far-left liberals. Even the village idiot should understand that nothing is acceptable to these masters of evil, unless it furthers their plan for conquest and enslavement of the whole world. Our statesmen proudly proclaim that this is the only hope of humanity for a better life. We may well wonder whether all the communists are on the other side. And of course, both liberals and neocons are essentially all communists, and they have been posing as Democrats and Republicans here in America for many decades, and in other white nations under other party labels perhaps Tory or Labour. Here our own listeners may see why we chose to present these two sermons together, as they do indeed address the same theme, albeit in different ways. The agreements which Christian nations have made with all of the world's non-white aliens at the behest of far-left liberals, who are actually the tools of international Jewry when they are not Jews themselves. Those Jews have it as their objective to enslave us all under communism, as communism has always been the bed partner, the tool, and the final objective of global capitalism. With this, they fulfill their intent, as it is stated in the Talmud, that all of the wealth of the so-called Gentiles is theirs, and that all of the Gentiles themselves are their rightful slaves. That's what Jewish rabbis really believe. That's what Jewish rabbis really strive to accomplish. They've always used ideas which are sold to us as noble ideas in order to to affect that. We will see an example of that at the end of this presentation. 
But America has already long been a communist nation. If the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto are sufficient evidence, because we have them all, they were all implemented here in the early 20th century. They were all implemented here before anybody who could possibly hear this podcast was even born. So things have been communist for a long time. However, we are not yet openly communist. The process of that revelation is just beginning. Most people would never understand how we're communist, even if you sat them down and read the Communist Manifesto to them. But before we can become openly communist, we must accept the idea that we should be like all the nations. And that, too, has become generally accepted only in recent decades. If there is no greater evidence of our subjection This recent COVID-19 pandemic should elucidate the truth of that situation beyond doubt. Continuing with Compare. In the long run, peace and prosperity can come only as the result of righteousness. Power gained by corrupt alliances with evil will always be used for evil purposes. Such alliances can't stand the light of day. They must be defended by suppression of the truth, by half-truths, and by outright lies. The relationship with Stalin being the signal example of that in American history. The public would repudiate these alliances if they were told the truth. This is why an organized smear campaign is waged against anyone who dares to tell the truth, Compare saying this in the 1970s. However, Yahweh's words will not be silenced. They give us a clear picture, even identifying the guilty ones. It's the Jews every single time. There is much more that could than what could possibly be said here in one sermon or a dozen in regard to these words. For example, what if the public were informed that our alliance with the godless Soviet Union in 1933, or I should say, what if they were informed in 1933, that our alliance with the Soviet Union was so that world Jewry could assume its control of Christian Germany, of which Adolf Hitler had deprived the Jews and returned to the German people. What if they were told that many of Hitler's actions were in response to the war which Jewry had declared against Germany in 1933? That is the truth of the situation. But the American public were only fed lies which were amenable to the Jews. Because those same international gangsters also controlled the American media. The Jews have controlled the media for a hundred years, or in some cases much longer. And they create reality for both the public and the government. They don't report reality, they create reality. So the whole country at once walks in the same direction without challenging what they see in the media. 
and they are all committing idolatry by worshiping Jews rather than God. Although Compré was rather objective in his remarks about Hitler, he nevertheless seems proud of the American accomplishment in the World War, where he continues and he says, We ended World War II as the mightiest nation in all of history. We were the undisputed master of the world. Since then, our leaders have brought us down to a point where they now tell us our survival is doubtful. These traitors say we have no hope of survival unless we can be saved by the weak nations of Asia and Africa. This evil is entirely their handiwork, yet they claim the right to lead us the rest of the way to total disaster. And the truth is that we made alliances with evil in the first place in order to claim the position of the so-called mightiest nation in all of history. As the dragon has always given its power to the beast. Once again, returning to Compare, Yahweh warned us about this. Isaiah 9.16 tells us, The leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led by them are destroyed. Why didn't the politicians tell us that they were what they were doing before they got us into this mess. Psalm 62.4 says, They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. How could they lead us into anything but disaster? Isaiah 59 verses 4 through 9 warns us, None calleth for justice, nor any plead for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. At the beginning of our presentation this evening, we have already exhibited from the words of the prophet Isaiah how ancient Jerusalem had been infiltrated and corrupted by the enemies of our God who are now known as Jews. And now Compare finally attests to the source of that same corruption today. He says, We all know that race called Jews, whose sinister power of wealth and organization dominates all, all politics. I'm sorry. Dominates all pol politics today. I just can't seem to get it out. They force both political parties down the same path through socialism toward the ultimate disaster of world communism because they are masters of all major parties here and the leaders of communism in all countries. They feel they are safe. Anybody's victory must be their victory. And they are not only the leaders of communism in all countries, but they are also the leaders of capitalism in all countries. And even with his insight, Bertrand Compré was sometimes caught in the false dichotomies offered to us by the devils. Perhaps none of us can escape them completely, but Americans would never have accepted globalism under the name of communism. So the Jews had their former 
communist puppet, Ronald Reagan, popularized globalism in the name of capitalism and making America great again, as if Donald Trump were the first president to run on that platform. That's not true. Reagan said it first during his campaign in 1980. Then he quickly paved the way for the transfer of all our manufacturing and technology to China. That's how Reagan made America great again. And Donald Trump didn't do a damn thing to reverse it. Now, once again, continuing with Compare, Yahweh has news for them. It is in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 through 21. Wherefore, hear ye the word of Yahweh. Ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Now we're getting back into where we started this evening because I preempted Compare with putting this passage into a wider context, which is the reason why I did it. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid, falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hell shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden by it. From the time it goes forth, it shall take you, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. While Isaiah's words are prophecies for his immediate times, they are also prophetic of the situation of Israel today, as they point not only to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities of Israel and Judah, but also to the ultimate deliverance of Israel, which is in Yahshua Christ, and the day of the wrath of Yahweh, where he finally executes vengeance on his enemies. So once again, we are in the same circumstances, and Israel will attain salvation just as it is outlined in Isaiah, because his words are still relevant until that salvation and final vengeance are fully realized. Continuing with Compare, he is still focusing on the wicked. When one marshals all the forces of wickedness together, and connives to paralyze all the forces that would normally oppose evil. He creates a Frankenstein monster which may, or a golem, a golem would be more appropriate, which may finally turn on its creator. The covenant with death is unreliable, even for those who have made it. What must it be for our own nation when we allow ourselves to be used for its unholy purposes? Already we see the futility of all our expectations of good to be obtained by cooperation with evil. The United Nations, that unholy palace of strangers cursed by Yahweh, 
has not solved any problems yet. It has only created many new problems. The few times its decisions have been on the side of good, they have been completely futile, for Russia and China have ignored them. Here Compre is glued to his own interpretations. The phrase, palace of strangers, appears in scripture only in Isaiah chapter 25, in a context where it is speaking in reference to a city in the land of Israel, which had become occupied by strangers, and for which reason it is destroyed by God. Then in chapters 26 and 29, the relevant portions of which we have already cited, we find that city is Jerusalem itself. Likewise, in this age, the modern cities of Israel have also become palaces of strangers. But the interpretation of the prophecy certainly, certainly should not be limited to the United Nations organization. So returning to Compare, as Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. The rest of the decisions made at the United Nations have been in furtherance of the purposes of evil. The result has been a continuous cold war at all times. There has been almost a continuous shooting war in various parts of the world all while our fumbling efforts to secure peace have failed. Read today's reports from all over the world. Why doesn't our refuge of lies, our covenant with death, the United Nations, solve any of these problems? No alliance with hell can ever bring a good solution to any problem. It lacks the essential moral principles, which are the only possible foundation for justice and peace. While Compare was of an upright heart, he fell short of seeing that the real covenant with death was the acceptance of the Jews, who arranged all of these things on behalf of our so-called nation, as America is not truly a nation. Jews have been meddling in American politics and finance for centuries and already came to control by 1913 when the Federal Reserve Act was passed. That is our covenant with death. Our, commi our commitment to the powers of Satan and to usury, our national commitment to usury. However, by the time of the Roosevelt administration in 1932, they began to openly occupy important offices of the American bureaucracy in much more significant numbers and moved America into a globalist community. The forming of the United Nations was only a front for what had already been a behind-the-scenes reality. The real covenant with death is, those same, is with those same international merchants that had also occupied and corrupted ancient Jerusalem. They are the proponents of liberalism, which has encouraged us to be like all the nations.
as Compare has already noticed. So returning to his sermon, he continues to cite Isaiah chapter 28. The bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it. And the covering, the covering, I'm sorry, narrower than he can wrap himself in it. It must always be inadequate for any good purpose and always fall short of accomplishment. The powers of hell are equal members of it, and every resolution must be cut down until it will meet with their approval or it fails. Of course, it fails anyway. Everything that the United Nations has done fails anyway, and that too is by design. Read the Protocols of Zion, where the Jews purposely make every government effort a failure so that people lose hope in government and submit to their rule. It's right in the Protocols. I forget which one, but it's right in there. Someday I'll get back to my series of commentaries on the protocols. I really do look forward to that. There was something funny about this, which is certainly true, about this passage of Isaiah, which is certainly true. As international corporations control our economy, the one-pound package has become 13 ounces. The king-size blanket gets shorter and narrower the two-inch by four-inch beam is actually three and a half inches by one and a quarter inches. And the traditional 12-ounce beer has now become 11 ounces, at least if you drink imported beer, European beer. I don't think that's hit here yet. The quart has become a liter, which is over 5% smaller. However, that is not the true meaning of the passage, which rather indicates, and neither is it the way Compré interpreted it, the passage rather indicates that because Israel has made a covenant with death through its associations and dealings with the other nations, then once judgment comes, there will be no rest until it passes. There will be no rest. A man won't be able to hide in his bed. A man won't be able, when this judgment comes, to just sleep through it. Compre continues by once again citing 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which serves to prove that the commandments for separation in the Old Testament are still valid in the New Testament. Only he continues to accept that word thing. When the true subject of the admonition is unclean people, we have had our warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, citing verse 17. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith Yahweh, and touch not the unclean thing. Our politicians are under the control of the sinister race who made this covenant with death. So we must follow this path to its terrible end. Their wickedness will have its just reward, as it says in Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 5 and 10, ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made a wall for the house of Israel, to stand in the battle in the day of Yahweh, because you have spoken vanity and seen lies. Therefore, behold, I am against you, saith Yahweh, because... 
even because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, and there is no peace. The true subject of that prophecy were the false prophets of ancient Israel. The words were directed at them. But if they themselves were not Jews or Canaanites, being prophets of Baal, they learned from the Canaanites. A few passages later, in Ezekiel chapter 16, we read, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. So there we see once again that ancient Jerusalem was infiltrated and corrupted by the ancestors of those who call themselves Jews today. And evidently that was the point which Compare was also trying to make. Continuing once again. Finally, what of that people whose crafty maneuver first created the United Nations as a step toward their world power? I would dispute with that. It was the hallmark of their world power. Then they used it as a means of committing practically all nations to approval of their violent seizure of Palestine. Will their covenant with death and agreement with hell give them immunity? When the forces they have turned loose on the rest of the world breaks into open war. No, as we have seen in the study of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, the red forces will come through Palestine on their way to seize Egypt and the Suez Canal. In the process, terrible fighting will occur there. And here Clifton made a, a critical note, which is certainly appropriate, and he said, Compare's Compare, that's probably a typo. Compare has a misconception in this article where he said, as we have seen in the study of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, the red forces will come through Palestine on their way to seize Egypt and the Suez Canal. In the process, terrible fighting will occur there. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 have nothing to do with an attack on the Canaanites calling themselves Israel in Palestine today. We must wonder how Comprey interpreted Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 apart from the same language which is used by Christ in Revelation chapter 20, which certainly reveals that both prophecies forebode the same events. It is the camp of the saints, and in Ezekiel, the mountains of Israel which are overrun with all the enemies of God, led by Gog and Magog. And that alone precludes Palestine, as the saints no longer live there. They haven't lived there in thousands of years. It is not the mountains of geographical Israel, of which Ezekiel speaks, but those of true Israel, those of the people, and not of the ancient land. We must also add that the Jews who have deceived our formerly Christian nations into these covenants with death do not make such covenants for themselves. We made covenants with the Jews. They are death, walking death, 
as they are devils who know that they have but a short time, as we read in Revelation chapter 20, where it prophecies of these same things which Comparé points out here from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Now, continuing with Comparé, he finally cites the passage for which the sermon is named. He's already cited it, but he finally comments on the passage for which the sermon is named. As Isaiah Isaiah states, the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be annulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand, when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, and then ye shall be trodden down by it. This is the appropriate kind of justice which Yahweh so often uses, allowing one group of evil men to punish another. When their full military power is released, the Russian army may well decide that they need no longer obey the aliens who have been their masters since 1917. They might think that, since they must fight and die for world conquest. They might as well seize for themselves the prize they bought at such a bloody cost. Thus are the plots of wicked men brought to failure. While we do not agree with some of, or or I should say, with many of Compre's conclusions here, specifically with the setting in which he places the fulfillment of these prophecies, if I was writing in his time, I may have been led to believe the same conclusions. However, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which are parallelisms with one another, are not necessarily describing a military invasion in the way in which we commonly imagine. Rather, the hordes of Ashkenazi Jews from Russia invaded America over a hundred years ago, and they, being Satan, collectively have already gathered all of the world's non-white nations, as well as those identifiable nations of the now Arab world, and have brought them against the camp of the saints. So we have been invaded. We are overrun, and we are still being invaded. Yet we continue to make alliances with these aliens, even as they occupy our lands and devour our goods and our children. While Yahweh shall use the wicked to punish one another, as Compare stated here, he also uses them to punish his people. And they shall be punished until they finally repent and follow his commandments. There are just a couple of sentences left in this sermon. In this last great world war, the United Nations will crumble into ruin instantly. Against the Red Alliance, there can be only one effective opposition. This is not a debating society paralyzed by its many clashing hatreds and conflicting interests. Only the military alliance of the white Christian nations 
The true Israel will be effective against this menace. Neither do I agree with that. Only a return of obedience to God will be effective against this menace. Not any military alliance. And it's not the Red Alliance we should worry about. It's the Jews and the enemy within who are overrunning us with these aliens that we need to worry about. The Red Alliance is here. It was here in Compare's time. He couldn't put it together because he didn't see it fulfilled. Even Compare couldn't imagine the tens of millions of Mexicans that have moved up into America, driven by international corporations. The countless thousands of Negroes or or black Africans and those of other races, countless tens of thousands who have been transferred into America these last 50 years. Even Compare couldn't see the end result of that, that by 2030, whites may be a minority in their own nation. And it's already happening in large numbers in every Christian European nation as well. And Compare couldn't have imagined that. He expected a military invasion. The hordes of the enemies are already here. Compare's final paragraph. It will be the separation of the sheep from the goats, foretold by Yahweh. Then the climax of this great drama will be the return of Yahshua, winning the war for us with his terrible weapons as he has promised. The covenant of death will then be ended forever. And there Compare gets it right. There Compare understands that God must win this battle for us, so that we don't boast in our own flesh, so that we don't claim victory for ourselves and continue in our humanism. Estimating the current state of our people, of modern white Christians, it is evident that we have a long road before us until the covenant with death is ended, is annulled, I should say. Compare could not have foreseen the situation which we as a nation have gotten ourselves into. Basically, we do not need to be conquered by the so-called Red Alliance because we have become one with the Red Alliance. The woman joined herself to the beast. And as the days pass, more and more of us fall into that pattern of being unthinking, subservient drones in support of all of the objectives of world Jewry. The woman has joined herself to the beast where she sits a queen. A queen with a COVID mask on. And there is no repentance or even cognizance of sin in sight. Now there is a concluding note by Clifton Emmerheiser. Compare is correct on this thesis, as we have already made a covenant with death. It is called the Genocide Treaty. And Compre died shortly before it was signed. What it amounts to is selling out our sovereignty to the United Nations. Under the provisions of the treaty, one could be arrested by a United Nations police force, taken to a foreign country and be tried for some hatched-up crime. There, one would face a trial without the benefit of the rights guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and without due process. 
and the U.S. government could not intercede on our part. I should point out that about 20 years ago, the Genocide Treaty was passed by Congress and signed into law by the President. Clifton is probably writing this sometime around 2006. That story was given only about 60 seconds on one of the big three television networks. At that time, where we lived in Ohio, we were on Standard Time, while Cleveland was on Daylight Savings Time, which station we were able to get as Fostoria had a 400-foot-high receiving antenna and distributed several stations to subscribers via cable. After I heard this from the Cleveland station, knowing that Toledo would repeat it an hour later, I set up my VCR to automatically time record it. All that is needed now is a flimsy excuse to declare martial law and we will forfeit all our rights guaranteed by our Constitution. And a few there are who understand the implications of this agreement. While there are many ways by which we have lost our rights, by which we have ceded sovereignty to the United Nations, and not only to the United Nations, but to the organizations of the global banking community. Sadly, I have had Clifton's audio and video cassette library here in storage for four years, but I don't even know if it's still usable, as it has long been exposed to the Florida heat, and I had insufficient funds to store it in a climate-controlled environment. But on another note, even Clifton himself had acknowledged that most of the library had little use, as it is replete with the errors of early, earlier identity teachers, who taught heresies such as denying to seed line, the ridiculous sixth and eighth day creation heresy, the Dominion theology espoused by Compare here, and many more grievous errors. We have to put away all of these errors. While we respect and admire Bertrand Compare and at least some of the others, we must always look to improve our message because it is truth, and we need to prove all things and let go of what is error, no matter our opinion of its teacher. Certainly, Compre would have agreed, as we have seen here, that globalism is Jewish and so is communism. They are all one and the same. In an article published in the Jewish newspaper, The Forward, titled, Is Ranting Against Globalism Anti-Semitic? The Jewish author states that globalist is a term with an anti-Semitic history, and it's often understood as code for Jews. So this language is activating and traumatizing for a lot of Jews. End of quote. Then a little further on, she writes, and I quote once again, The connection between globalists and Jews is, in part, the old anti-Semitic smear that Jews are not true, loyal citizens of any nation. Hitler described Jews as international elements that conduct their business everywhere, thus harming and undermining good people who are bound to their soil, to the fatherland. 
Use of globalist as a negative term can be a dog whistle for the far right. Those who recognize its roots in Hitler's philosophy recognize that it's an encoded way of denigrating Jews. End of quote. Of course, Bible students understand that Cain was cursed from the soil. So it is no wonder that Jews despise those words of Hitler. So while the author decries the label of globalist as an anti-Semitic slander, she goes on to defend the principle and uses it to describe herself. She professes that I'm a globalist because I don't accept the zero-sum thinking that in order for us to prosper, they have to be diminished. And that's true whether the us is my town or my state or my nation or my religious community. We're all interconnected geographically, emotionally, spiritually, environmentally. And isn't that a load of Jewish bullshit? Liberty, equality, fraternity. The unclean frogs, which today are spirits that have power over every nation. Brought to us by Satan himself, the collective of Jewry. After supporting her remarks with citations from some Buddhist squat monster, she continues and she says, I'm a globalist because post-triumphalism, she sees nationalism as triumphalism, is a core teaching of Jewish renewal. Rabbi Zalman of Blessed Memory taught that humanity must evolve beyond imagining that only one religion can be right and therefore all of the others are wrong. Instead, he urged us to see ourselves religiously like organs in the body of humanity. We need each organ to be what it is. If the heart tried to do the liver's job, the body would be in trouble. She's putting every walking creature into the same body, which is contrary to Christ. And we also need each organ to be in communication with the others. Because if the heart stopped speaking to the liver, the body would also be in trouble. As Reb Zalman wrote in Jewish with Feeling, if we think of the world as an organism, then triumphalism is a cancerous attitude. We're all part of a greater whole. This fundamental spiritual truth shapes my sense of globalism as an ethical and spiritual imperative. So globalism is basically the same as Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox universalism. And now we really know where the Catholics had originally gotten it from. And that is also true, but that is also another story. So she embraces the term globalist when she, or her rabbi, can define its meaning. And she defines its meaning from the words of Buddhists and rabbis, where she can paint a pretty picture with a perceived moral advantage that makes globalism sound like a good and noble cause, when in fact it is inherently evil and anti-Christian, leading to a new order of universal Marxism at the expense 
of the integrity of the creation of God. Jews are quick to sacrifice the authority of the God of the Bible when they can use that sacrifice to slander Christ. But these people who call themselves Jews are not. In all of their deeds, they exhibit themselves to be the children of devils. Globalism is Jewish. It is pushing the world into communism. And those who promote it also believe that they shall emerge as its masters, persuading themselves that they are indeed the princes of this world. So the Israeli state in Palestine is never held to the same standards as all of the world's other nations. And diversity and multiculturalism are only forced onto white Christian nations. Jews love Buddhism, but they hate Christ and seek to destroy Christianity while they promote all other religions. Come out from them and be ye separate. And touch not the unclean. Come out from among them, lest ye suffer her punishment, their punishment. We have long had our warnings. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and only Israel. White Christian Israel. And good night.